In this 28th episode of BachCast, we look at the six-part Reacher car from Bach's musical offering, BWV-1079. If you remember from an earlier episode where we looked at the trio sonata from this work, Bach was given by Frederick the Great a theme on which to build fugues. Fugues where you take a theme and basically construct it so that you can hear that theme play against itself in multiple guises. By Bach's time, Bach was sort of following a formula for how to put together a fugue. You would hear the theme, and then you would hear the theme enter on what we call a second voice. This would be another part uh, on the music score. It could be another part, another instrument that comes in, perhaps in a cantata setting, or it could be the pedal of of the organ coming in. When Bach visited Frederick the Great, where his son, Karl Emanuel was working in Potsdam, he was presented with this challenge. Can you sit down after being presented with this theme and compose a fugue on sight? If you've ever studied music or counterpoint, you know that that would be a tall order just to do with a pencil and a paper and working things out. To be able to actually sit down at an instrument and do that in your head would be quite a show. So Bach does this. He composes at the keyboard a three-part fugue. And not being satisfied that that was hard enough, Frederick the Great supposedly says, can you now do it in six parts? Bach uh, supposedly attempts this, is not satisfied with the result, goes home, and in preparation uh, at home, actually fulfills the request to take this very difficult theme, one that has a lot of chromatic notes, and put together something that uh, fit the bill, a six-part setting. The performance we're going to listen to first is by David Moroni. This came off a, a Harmonia Mundi release many years ago. Uh, he's joined by a number of different musicians uh, to fulfill the entire recording, but in this case, he's at the keyboard by himself. And Bach writes this in an open score. And I'm going to link to an open score in the show notes that I believe makes it easier to kind of follow the entire piece as you hear it. I do not think following an open score is easy for a keyboard player. And so there are versions of this written out in two staves, as we might uh, expect to see it uh, if we were a keyboard player. Uh, But for study purposes, it's nice to see everything kind of separated out. So you're going to see in the score six different lines. Now, if we were a string quartet, we'd have four lines, one for the viola, uh, one, two for the two violins, and one for the cello. And that is why, in some cases, people have taken to uh, adapting Bach to different uh, instrumentations. He might have written, for instance, a four-part fugue for two hands, but when it's viewed in that kind of open score, a cello player says, well, I can play the bottom part. A violin player says, I can play the top part. And we see this emergence in the past 20-some years of arrangements of box fugues. And there's a number of great recordings out there where people have done just that. In today's episode, I want you to understand both um, 
the mechanics that go behind putting this together, uh, not at a deep level. We're, we're not going to dedicate the episode to how Bach actually succeeds at putting this together. It would be very difficult for me to concisely communicate that if I didn't, if I couldn't show you the score at the same time, and we'd have to basically color code things and, and just point out how all the voices interact. But on the surface level, I want you to understand that this was a really was a great feat for Bach to put this together. And so what you're going to hear in the background is the performance of the six parts, uh, six part Richard Carr. And Bach is simply using the word Richer Carr, which is kind of an old fashioned reference to a piece of contrapuntal music. But of course, he he has each of those word, uh, letters standing for something. He's being kind of an acronym out of it. Um, he's trying to be clever and intellectual, I think, in, in putting this collection together to send to Frederick the Great. But when we hear it, I'm going to be basically just pointing out when a new voice comes in. A new voice would be, ultimately, you're going to be playing about three parts in each hand when all six parts come in. And then we'll kind of fade out. And I'll speak a little bit about what this piece does beyond fitting together uh, a puzzle um, using this theme sort of as the uh, kind of the, the cell piece. If you think of, um, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this before, some of the, the drawings of uh, M.C. Escher, how he takes a uh, maybe a horse and fits it together in a pattern. And then below the horse is another type of animal which kind of fits in uh, the negative space of the horse. Maybe it's a fish or something. I'm not really referencing one particular Escher work in my head, but you've probably seen those designs where you have interleaving different things. And depending the way you look at it, uh, you kind of see uh, different things. You're either staring at the fish or you're either staring at the horses. Um, in the same way, when we listen to Bach here in this very dense, rich piece of music, um, the fact that this theme keeps coming up and it keeps coming in a different register, maybe in the middle at first and then eventually at the high point, um, what we might call the soprano or the treble line, and then eventually it's in the bass line, um, which means sometimes that theme is acting as the basis of the harmony. Other times it's not that Bach is inventing a harmony around that theme. Um, it is definitely like looking at one of these Escher pieces. But in an Escher drawing that I might be thinking about where there are two different things fitting together, think of the complexity if Escher were to take six different objects that repeat and fit together. And so sometimes you'll hear the theme, sometimes you'll hear what we might call the counter theme or the counter subject. Um, uh, another piece of music that kind of fits against the theme. So what's interesting about the, the excerpt we're going to hear is Bach is starting, and the score I'm looking at that's been arranged um, starts it on the third line down using the alto clef. Uh, it's, we're in the key of C minor, and it starts out, and if you're looking at the score when you're listening to this, or you have the opportunity later to pull up the score online, What's unique about the clip we're going to hear is that that initial voice is playing completely through the entire thing. Bach always has to sort of keep it going. 
and he lets it finally drop off when the sixth voice enters. And at the score I'm looking at, that is in measure 49. That's where the theme enters into the sixth and bass voice, we might call it. And then he gives that middle voice a couple measures of rest, and then yet it comes in again. And by the time that the theme has uh, finished in the bass, he has all six voices playing together. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable if you have ever sat down and tried to write two-part, three-part counterpoint to understand that Bach is fitting this amazingly chromatic theme and he's making harmonies fit. And occasionally as you listen to this, if you are not listening to it from left to right, but you're listening to a more of a vertical orientation, you're hearing the harmonies, Bach definitely goes into some strange places with harmonies because he's presented with um, these flats and these sharps and, and uh, natural signs, basically tones that really don't belong in the key because he's been presented with a theme that has all these chromatic notes in it to begin with. So, without any further ado, this is the Ricercare A6 from Bach's musical offering, performed on the harpsichord by David Maroni. Chromatic steps down. Now we're more clearly in C minor again. Second voice. So Bach in his original voice is countering that. He's having two things come together. Third voice enters. Now we have the fourth voice. Little extra few bars here before we get the fifth voice in. And here it is in the top line. Now the sixth and final voice. Boom, 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 boom. So one of the things Bach uses besides the theme, because in the context of a six-voice structure, it would be very difficult to keep track in your mind, unless maybe you're Bach himself, 
of all those different voices. And so when we start out, it's this very slow, we're doing basically half notes. And we little jump into there, right? But then when the second voice enters, he does this bum dun dun. Uh, he does an eighth note, two sixteenth notes, and then some quarter notes. So that original voice, which is now playing against the theme, has faster notes. Okay, and the important little nugget there, the little thing that kind of sticks out, is that bum bum dun dum. The eighth note, two sixteenth notes. That little rhythmic motive. Um, Bach, as we have found out, likes to play with rhythm. Uh, you'll hear it a lot in some of his faster movements, such as a concerto or the, even in cantata movements, you want to kind of be tapping your foot and you've got this little, these repetitions, these little rhythmic motives that sometimes may always be in the same um, orientation with a melody, but sometimes they're not, right? If we hear just a snare drum in the background playing a rhythm, it has no melody to it, but that rhythm we can kind of keep hearing. Well, Bach can do that, any composer can do that, with the same notes, or they can change that. But in this case, it's a it's a little twist. It's um, And I'm looking here at, at the score, I'm looking actually at measure number nine. It's C, E flat, D, C, dun, 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 dun. And he does that again in the 17th measure. You'll see that there. It's been transposed. But it's that little rhythmic thing that kind of pops out of the texture. And if we heard it once, you're going to expect to hear it again. Uh, you can almost take measure 9 and measure 7, uh, excuse me, measure 17. You'll see that the theme starts in the second line in measure 9. Now the theme is starting in the fifth line in measure 17. And there is that little rhythmic motive. You'll see it again in measure 25 against the theme entering for the fourth time. So Bach is, it's not just that first initial little thing. He's also taking the music that comes after it. And what makes it kind of interesting is we've got this little rhythmic motif, which is kind of easy for us to hear because it's a little unique and it's faster than those slow notes that maybe we've already trained ourselves to start hearing. Dun, dun, dun. Um, what then happens is they kind of catch up and start playing together. So he has he's playing in um, in harmony with the same direction and the same rhythmic motifs. So specifically, I'm looking at measure 37. You'll see in the third and fourth voice, you'll see the same dun, 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 dun. Because the clefts change, it looks like, if you're looking at the score, like it's the same notes, that they're playing in unison. They're not. Um, we have a different clef in line four, and so those notes are actually playing in harmony. But we'll hear that rhythmic motif kind of come out again. Uh, if you were to fast forward in the score... We don't hear it for a while because in this section of the music in the 50s, measure, measure numbers from the late 40s and 50s here, Bach is playing around. He's doing different things with the voices and he's waiting for basically that main theme to come in to close. Um, 
and he introduces some other rhythmic motifs. He's having voices play together again. Um, doing some really cool stuff. He's, he's not taking this lightly or easily. To him, you've got to think that this is probably uh, a pretty important uh, work of art that he's put together. Um, I'm fast-forwarding through here, just kind of visually analyzing things. He's, he's definitely got some flights here of eighth notes, which make life interesting. He's playing a lot with long notes as well. Um, so some of those voices are really holding out. And then when we get to measure 115, it's by now, if you're, if you're taking a look at the music, um, you're going to spot it probably pretty easily. But here we have the entrance of the theme again. Um, and then in measure 122, I believe, if I'm counting correctly, we have some 16th notes. But by and large, he uh, has jettisoned that little motif, that little dum 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 dum, dum which is kind of interesting, right? Because it was originally part of that initial line, but it's really not the theme. So he's jettisoned that, and he's been able to combine the voices in different ways. So um, the theme basically ends, if you look at the very end of the score, where it measure um, 199, it starts in, in the one I'm looking at, you'll, you'll see the end of it. Actually, in measure 197, uh, the last entrance of that theme, again, he basically gives us all the theme again, and we start now in the home key. Originally in the bass, the theme appeared in the key of G minor, and now we're in the key of C C minor, the home key. Basically, it ends the piece. It starts the piece. The same theme ends the piece. That is the six-part Richard Carr. Um, if this is of interest to you, and it's not of interest to everybody, but it was of interest to Bach, and it's basically he was taking a form of, yeah, you enter voice by voice, kind of piling up a theme, doing counter themes that go against the theme, uh, you have a little bit of uh, what we might call a development section where we're playing with the different voices, and then uh, basically we're going to take this home by entering those voices again and ending on the music we began with. Um, Bach succeeds in making this work. It's it's pretty cool piece of music. But I want to talk about not so much the mechanics, as I said. I'm done talking about how Bach put this together. I want to talk about emotionally or aesthetically what does this piece do for us? Um, it is not a happy kind of light tune. And just to give you a context from what we just listened to, um, Bach goes to Potsdam, visits his son, who is a court composer and keyboard player. Um, he's mixing around with other musicians who really ascribe to the next generation of style. Uh, there are a lot of different names for it. I'm going to call it pre-classical. Um, this is what the king liked. The king was a flute player. There was a lighter feel to the music. And all this 
dense counterpoint fitting all this together and being a slave to a, one particular theme really wasn't the style. So I'm going to give you a sample here. This is a, um, a harpsichord sonata uh, by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. Just to give you a taste of what the flavor was like of the style that was more um, popular at the time. Mahani Esfahani. This was a really uh, great release on the Hyperion label uh, entitled Wertenberg Sonatas. Uh, it has a bluish gray cover with a, a figure lying down. Um, really great playing. And in this case, you hear kind of the lightness. CPE box starts with a little theme kind of an A-B structure there, repeats it. Um, so we're still dealing with themes, we're still dealing with developing those themes, but it's much lighter, much simpler. We're just presenting the theme by itself and we're harmonizing in the left hand. We're not trying to play the theme against itself. We've got these nice little short, easy to digest phrases. That was what was popular. Um, this was the new age of musical style and Bach is writing this big thick soup and so it kind of this lightness and kind of um, easy to digest flavor of what we hear in the background right now is something to consider because uh, music was something that you could you wanted to be able to easily follow um, Bach's music the this this six-part fugue that he writes is more for a connoisseur, somebody who's uh, deep, maybe deeply musical, who can uh, follow along and kind of have it be revealed to them what Bach has put together and kind of step back in awe and go, wow. Uh, just as we think that God puts together the universe, different planets and how he makes life work, that the sun rises every day and it sets in the evening. Uh, this is kind of the the standpoint I think Bach takes with a piece of music like this. Uh, certainly not at God's level, but imitating the complexity uh, of what God has put together. And here's this new music that's much lighter, that's written, I think, for enjoyment. And I'm not about to make you think that I don't think um, J.S. Bach's music isn't for enjoyment. Because I think behind all of that complexity that uh, you will see if you follow the score and can, if you even read music, follow the patterns of the notes and know that he's put that together. I think there's something still because of the harmony and the, the way he has manipulated that theme made something that's still emotionally satisfying and deeply rewarding when we listen to it. So let's listen to B2V 1079 in a little bit of a different way.
I can still remember when this recording came out. This is Ensemble Sonnerie, uh, directed by Monica Huggett, who's also a violinist and performing in this um, small six-part band. But basically what they've done is they've taken the instruments of box sound world, things like an oboe, a violin, um, uh, a bassoon, and basically took this at a six-part score, sat down and performed this with one instrument color per part. Now, we don't know if Bach ever did this. We don't have examples of Bach writing a small chamber piece with one different sound-colored instrument per part. You know, we, we can look at a trio sonata. For instance, in the same piece, he writes a trio sonata for the flute, violin, and basso continuo. The difference here is we don't need a basso continuo. We don't need uh, an instrument on the bottom filling out the harmony because with this six-part texture, Bach is taking care of, he has plenty of resources to fill out harmony. Uh, he's not going to leave any empty spaces in there. So this is more of a texture of like a string quartet, which I mentioned earlier. Something that you have one instrument per part, and what I love about this recording is, number one, it's colorful. They, I think they did an excellent job at choosing uh, the instruments they did to fit the ranges on each line, but it also makes each voice very clear. Uh, it makes it easier for you to concentrate on one particular line. You can hear the individual violin line. You can hear the individual flute line when it comes in. You can hear the individual line from the bassoon. And you can begin to, um, makes it just easier, I think, to see how it all fits together. And for me, having string instruments that can rise uh, and decrescendo, um, a, a wind instrument where we can increase uh, the volume and the intensity of timbre uh, with our breath. Um, this makes the music much more organic. Now this idea of doing this, uh, I can't necessarily say for Ensemble Sonnery was entirely original because uh, another composer uh, took this very same piece, this six-part fugue, and I think what probably made it attractive to this composer is it had all these chromatic lines in it. Anton Webern, who's known for writing atonal music, arranges Bach's Richerkar for orchestra. But unlike what we just heard in the Ensemble Sonnerie recording with something that's very easy to follow, very clear, Webern is playing with color. He's a master orchestrator, and he basically is taking little snippets of these uh, long lines and trading them to different sections and individuals within the orchestra. I'm going to play a snippet of that and see if you can hear what I'm trying to describe.
This actually comes from a recording that I've featured before in Bachcast. This is um, on the ECM News Series label. It's the Munich Chamber Orchestra. And in addition to this work by Webern, they also feature uh, BWV4, Kreislagen Todesbanden, which is performed uh, in addition to the Chamber Orchestra, the Hilliard Ensemble. So in this next recording, our final example from uh, BWV 1079, we're listening to Ensemble Contrast. They did a album in 2013 of Bach transcriptions, and they included the six-part Reacher Car, but here it's performed by four instruments, um, strings and piano. Um, to me, this is a highly effective interpretation. I really like where they go. They're playing on modern instruments, but they play them in the style, uh, at least with the strings, uh, in a period way, uh, with not a lot of vibrato. I think that would have killed it. There's a purity to the sound here. Um, I would like you to hear what happens after all six parts come in, because that's where I think uh, when that sixth voice comes in, it's something really special. I, and it's hard for me to describe, but there's this feeling you have like, ah, I have done it. I've entered with the sixth voice. And Bach really turns up the drama at that point, again, playing mostly with harmony. So sit, just sit back and listen to what happens when that sixth voice comes in. long-held notes and then that rhythmic motif dun, 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 just kind of leads you through and the modulations going on there in the harmony to me is just sublime and then we end right there this is a counter theme and so Bach is kind of working us back into the idea of counterpoint here using not the main theme but elements that he used to harmonize with. You might imagine that the last opportunity we have for drama in the piece would be at the end, right? Where once again, we're regrouping, we're re-performing, uh, re-stating uh, the themes. And I'd like you to hear the last bits of this for how Bach handles this. Uh, again, just on the surface, if you're looking at uh, the score, um, and the score that I'm linking to in the show notes, I'm on um, 181st measure. It's the second group of staves in on page 11. And in the top voice, uh, Bach starts to introduce uh, lots of 16th notes. Dun, da -da 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 very fanciful, right? Mum, 
And there's little elements of the theme going on. If you look at the bass voice, he's got the chromatic going down, da 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 da. And then it's the last, on the last page, page 12, is where the actual statement of the theme comes back. So we're going to enter in um, somewhere on page 11, uh, if you're following this particular score, to see how Bach kind of closes up this piece. Again, with one of my very favorite recordings of the six-part Reacher car from Ensemble Contrast. that doesn't put a smile on your face, I don't know what would uh, in music. Uh, I just find that that ending, the whole piece, entirely satisfying. Uh, if you have not explored Bach's musical offering, and you've, if or if you have, and you've listened to the six-part Richard Carr, and it was just hard to get your head around, try one of these arrangements. Ensemble Sonnerie or Ensemble Contrast, they for me, open it up, make it a lot more accessible, a lot clearer to hear the parts, but it also is performing instruments that really go beyond what was capable just with a single keyboard instrument. This idea of breathing and making organic. Uh, it's one of Bach's great masterpieces. Folks, my name is John Hendren. You've been listening to episode 28 of BachCast. You can get the show notes and get access to more BachCast episodes at bieberfan.org. Thanks for listening.